Daniel 7, verses 9 and onward. As I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat, and his clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head was like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames, its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousand served him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court sat in judgment, and the books were opened. I looked then because of the sound of the great words that the horn was speaking. And as I looked, the beast was killed, and its body destroyed, and given over to be burned with fire. As for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. He came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. His kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. As for me, Daniel, my spirit within me was anxious and the visions of my head alarmed me. I approached one of those who stood there and asked him the truth concerning all this. So he told me and made known to me the interpretation of the things. These four great beasts are four kings who shall rise out of the earth, but the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, forever, and ever. Then I desired to know the truth about the four beasts, which were different from all of the rest, exceedingly terrifying with its teeth of iron and claws of bronze, and which devoured in broken pieces and stamped what was left with its feet, and about the ten horns that were, were on its head and the other horn that came up before which the three of them fell, the horn that had eyes and a mouth that spoke great things and that seemed greater than its companions. As I looked, this horn made war with the saints and prevailed over them until the Ancient of Days came and judgment was given for the saints of the Most High and the time came when the saints possessed the kingdom." Thus he said, as for the fourth beast, there shall be a fourth kingdom on earth, which shall be different from all of the kingdoms, and it shall devour the whole earth and trample it down and break it to pieces. As for the ten horns, out of this kingdom ten kings shall arise, and another shall arise after them. He shall be different from the former ones and shall put down three kings. He shall speak words against the Most High and shall wear out the saints of the Most High and shall think to change the times and the law. And they shall be given into his hand for a time, times, and half a time. But the court shall sit in judgment, and his dominion shall be taken away to be consumed and destroyed to the end. And the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. Their kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom, and all dominions shall serve and obey them. Here's the end of the matter. As for me, Daniel, my thoughts greatly alarmed me, and my color changed but I kept the matter in my heart. Heavenly Father, Lord, we call on you for your blessing as we seek to gain an understanding of these things that you have provided us, Lord. We ask, Father, that you'd be our teacher, our instructor, our guide. We pray, Father, uh, these things in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. Uh, this morning, what I want to do really is pick up where we left off last time, uh, namely being faithful when it's 
uh, scary. We might call this being faithful when it's scary part two. I, I didn't set out to have a second part, but uh, we just didn't finish everything last week. Um, so uh, for the sake of uh, anyone who wasn't here last week and didn't hear last week's mes- message, and for the sake of our uh, ever-fading memory, I don't know if I'm the only one that has that problem in here, but uh, uh, memories have a, ch- a tendency to fade. Uh, sometimes uh, uh, by Tuesday you, you may, might be struggling to remember what was said on Sunday morning. I don't know. Uh, hopefully you won't struggle this afternoon with it. But... Uh, our memories do fade, don't they? So um, as a benefit of that, I think it's necessary that we review the material, at least briefly. Uh, if we look at Daniel 7, we basically have three sections here. Verses 1 through 8 uh, is a, really a graphic depiction of human rebellion against God uh, through these beasts. Uh, remember, this is apocalyptic literature. Apocalyptic literature is meant to be seen. It's a word picture. Uh, God's not necessarily giving us precise information with this. What I mean by that is this is not a a history textbook that we have here, uh, but He is giving us an accurate depiction of what uh, the future looks like, if you will. Um, And through these beasts, uh, we we get this uh, imagery of, of mass rebellion against God. And then in verses 9 through 14, we have another picture, don't we? We have a picture of God's courtroom. We have a picture of the Ancient of Days, if you will. And a picture of the Son of Man coming and approaching the Ancient of Days and being coronated. And then in verses 15 and following, we have a divine interpretation of the matter. So we have these these three uh, pictures, if you will. And last week I developed these passages and I brought them uh, to a close with a series of reality checks. And in my notes, there was one more section actually to cover. And I think it needs to be covered. Uh, oftentimes, I don't make it to the ends of these sermons. I, I, I speak and I preach until I see folks are starting to get fatigued. If I see that you're getting fatigued, I wrap things up. Um, there's no sense in going on any further Uh, But I want to return to this because this is really important. Uh, There's one thing that that I've yet to do. I've yet to show how faith helps us overcome fear and be faithful when it's scary. That's a very important connection. What is the role of faith in overcoming fear? That's what I want to take up uh, this morning. So... Uh, let's begin by really revisiting Daniel here. Let's, uh, let's refamiliarize ourselves with the imagery. In verse 2, if you look there with me, Daniel begins to share his vision, which he saw in his dream. Notice he saw the four winds of heaven stirring up the great sea. You remember the development of that last week? We have the, the four winds, the number four is the number of universality. Uh, in apocalyptic literature, fours come up a lot. You know, we can think of four horsemen. You know, you think through the book of Revelation, you see fours happening. In Zechariah, we see fours happening. A number of universality, if you will, a number of completeness. So we have four winds of heaven. That means these winds are coming from all directions. We might think northeast, west, south, and every direction in between. And we have the sea here, which is a symbol of evil, rebellion, and chaos against Almighty God. You remember we went to the throne scene 
of uh, Almighty God in the book of Revelation, to see the antithesis of this, to see the opposite of this. Uh, before the throne of God, the sea is not churning up and, and doing all of this stuff. No, and when John sees his vision and, and, and God is seated upon his throne, the sea is like a, like a piece of crystal, isn't it? It's like a piece of glass, which is meant to depict this, this, the surrender of this evil chaos before Almighty God. Uh, but here in Daniel's vision, we have the opposite. This, this, the, the winds are blowing. We have this, this chaos, this evil rebellion that's going on in mass from every different direction. And out of this, we have four beasts arising. If you look at verse 17 uh, to the interpretation of this, we learn that the four, great, the four beasts uh, are four great kings who shall rise out of the earth. And if you look at verse 23, uh, you can conclude from that that these, uh, these four beasts could also be thought of as kingdoms. We could actually interchange in here, kings and kingdoms. We see that the king is so closely united with the kingdom that we can almost interchange those things. We can almost interchange that. Uh, uh, four great beasts or four great kings, if you will, or four great kingdoms that's going to come out of all of this uh, rebelling uh, chaos and evil and uh, verse 4 tells us that the first great beast was like a lion with eagle's wings. Uh, verse 5 tells us, Behold another beast, a second one like a bear. It has ribs in its teeth, three ribs. It's told to devour uh, more flesh. Verse 6, another beast emerges like a leopard with four wings. And then verses 7 to 8, a fourth beast, which Daniel really has nothing to compare it with. He just says that it's terrifying. Uh, it's exceedingly strong. Uh, it has these ten horns, and then out of a, the ten horns comes another horn, and three horns fall before the other horn. And, uh, so uh, uh, last week, as I said, you know, the, the temptation that we face right now, really I think one of the itching questions that we have when we come to this is to try to identify uh, these beasts. We want to know who they are. Who are these beasts? And I shared with you three views last week. I'll, I'll remind you that probably the most the, the traditional view is that these beasts are Babylon, Medo-Persia, then Greece, and then Rome. And there's an alternative uh, view that's pretty popular, especially right now, that uh, the first one is Babylon. The second one is the Medes. What they, they do is they, they separate the Medes and the Persians. So the second one is the Medes. Uh, the third would be the Persians, and the fourth would be Greece. And then I, I shared a, a third view, uh, which um, I, I think that I, I pretty much embrace a th the third view. Uh, but again, I, I don't want to be dogmatic about these, uh, the, necessarily about these views. But I think when we're asking, I think this much we can be pretty dogmatic about. When we're asking who the beasts are, uh, we're asking the wrong question. I think the question that we should be asking as we come to this text is not who these kingdoms are, but what's meant by all of this. You follow me? We're not asking who they are. We're not trying to identify them. We're, we're wanting to know what it means. Because when Daniel seeks the interpretation of this passage... When he asks the one who is standing by, what does all this mean? He doesn't identify them, does he? 
He doesn't go to the identity of these beasts. And as a consequence of that, the identity, the actual identity of the beast is not necessarily in understanding this passage. Does that make sense? Let me flesh this out a little bit more. I have a commentary here that's uh, written by a, a man that's in our presbytery, Ian Duguid. I want to read just a couple paragraphs for you that I think will, will help. Um, Ian writes in this commentary, he says here, the temptation for readers is the one to identify which four earthly kingdoms match up with the beasts, especially since the first beast, the winged lion that became a man, seems to represent Babylon. Its humbling and humanizing transformation makes us think of Nebuchadnezzar's humbling and rehumanizing in Daniel 4. Uh, what, what Ian is speaking about here, you think of the first beast. The first beast is a lion, right, with eagle's wings. And then the wings are plucked off, right? And then the lion stands up on its back feet, like starts walking around like a man, and then a mind of a man's given to it. And it makes us think of Daniel 4. What happens to Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel 4? He looks out at the, king, the kingdom of Babylon and he takes full credit for Babylon. He says, look at this great kingdom that I have made uh, with my hands. And what happens? He's judged. And he's given the mind of a beast. And now he's on all fours and he's living like a beast for a period of time and such time until he repents. And then he is reinstalled. Uh, so many commentators look at that. That's clearly pointing uh, to the king of Babylon. But that having been said, you start reading the commentaries. Commentaries written by really great Bible interpreters, and they come up with other things. So again, this apocalyptic literature, we have to remember there's always a lot of mystery associated with it. There's always a lot of mystery associated with it. Uh, Ian continues, he says, Meanwhile, in the parallel vision of four kingdoms in Daniel 2, the first kingdom, the head of gold, was explicitly identified as Nebuchadnezzar. So what he's doing here is he's making a comparison between Daniel 7 and Daniel 2, which is commonly done. Maybe some of you have already made that connection. You know, Daniel 7, we have four great beasts. Daniel 2, we have a, a Dan, uh, Nebuchadnezzar has a dream, right? And we have a head of gold. We have arms and chest of silver, a midsection of bronze and thighs and legs of iron. There are four kingdoms. And in the interpretation of that dream, we're explicitly told that the head of gold is Babylon, aren't we? We don't need to guess or conjecture about that because we are told. Daniel says, you, O king, are the head of gold. So this leads commentators to say, okay, Babylon's the starting point here. Uh, it's pretty much agreed. Babylon is the starting point. Starting from that generally agreed point, commentators debate whether the four kingdoms are Babylon, Medo, Persia, and Greece or Babylon, Medo-Persia together, Greece and Rome. Ian goes on to say, they will never resolve the discussion. However, since the data the vision provides is not sufficiently precise for that purpose. So the, the, these, these debates have been going on for a really long time and they haven't been, they haven't been resolved. And Ian is saying, well, it's not going to get resolved. There's not enough... <coughs> There's simply not enough data here to resolve it. He says, for example, the Greek empire was certainly fast and ferocious like the winged leopard, but so too were the Persians. Both kingdoms aspired to dominate the four corners of the world. And these attributes of speed and ferocity equally apply well to Nazi Germany. 
to many other warlike nations before and after them that have attempted world domination. He says, even more importantly, however, when the angelic interpreter explains to Daniel what the dream means in verses 17 and 18, he does not clarify the identity of the kingdoms, which is something I've just said. He goes on to say, he says, this suggests that a proper understanding of the vision does not rest on resolving this question. In fact, the attempt to identify the various beasts actually directs us away from the proper interpretation of the vision. He goes on to say the identification of the beast as four past empires is the exact opposite of the message of apocalyptic literature. For apocalyptic, nothing less than the beginning of the new age can change this world. Until the coming of this new age, the darkness will not lift significantly. It is therefore better to take the number of beasts as representing a symbol of completeness rather than a particular number of world empires. On such a view, the message of Daniel 7 is that life in this present age will always be this way until the end of this age. It is striking that superpowers of our own age still customarily represent themselves by predatory animals such as the Russian bear, the Chinese dragon, and the American eagle. The beasts of the present world order may change their shape as the centuries pass, but their violence and lust for power continues. Nebuchadnezzar turns into a Darius, who becomes an Alexander the Great, then an Antiochus Epiphany, the Seleucid king who brutally opposed and oppressed the Jews in the mid-second century. Their fierce rulers are in turn followed by a Nero or a Domitian. Their fires of persecution continue to be stoked centuries later by the Inquisition. The last century we have seen further manifestations of the beast in the persons of Hitler, Stalin, Kim Jong. And the frightening beasts of this age were present at the gas chambers of Belsen on the killing fields of Cambodia and Rwanda, and they are still tormenting the saints in Sudan and China and other parts of our modern world. Now, this commentary was published in 2008. I have no doubt that if Ian was writing this today, he would have added one more in there. He would have added ISIS in there. Wouldn't he? I would think. I would. One more paragraph. This continual presence of the beast in our world ought not to surprise us because every human manifestation of evil is simply a reflection of the work of the great dragon, Satan himself. In Revelation 13, we see a beast rising from the sea representing the persecuting power of the Antichrist, a beast that combines aspects of each of Daniel's creatures into one, a lion, bear, leopard with ten horns. Sometime this afternoon, take Daniel 7, verses 1 through 8, and compare it to Revelation 13, and you'll see what the end Ian is talking about. Whatever our location in space and time, frightening monsters array themselves against the Lord and His anointed. We inhabit a world in which there is good reason to have trouble sleeping at night. As Paul reminds us in Ephesians 6, we wrestle not with flesh and blood, but against the rulers, authorities, the powers of this dark world and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. So what are we saying here? What we're saying here is that the meaning of verses 1 and 8, instead of looking at the identity of these beasts, we're looking at what this means. What does this mean? It means that there's going to be a consecutive uh, string of these kinds of of, uh, manifestations of lust for power. We're going to have one after another after another of these uh, empires that attempt to dominate the entire world. And what have we had since then? What do we have today? You know, what's going on in Syria right now? 
And we could look at other parts of the world. You know, the, the men have always lusted to gain worldwide power. This happens in every generation, doesn't it? And it'll continue to happen until when? Until Christ returns. I think, I think that makes, to me, to my mind, this makes the most sense uh, of, this, uh, of this passage. So, uh, yes, the kingdoms include Babylon, Greece, Medo-Persia, and Rome, uh, but they're not limited to them. That's what I'm trying to say. They're not limited to them. And it's going to be this way until Christ comes. And I think this fits perfect, perfectly really in the context. You know, Let's not lose sight of the original context. What is the original context of this? You know, we go back to Daniel 7, or back to Daniel 1, rather, verse 1. Uh, Daniel is carried off from where? It's from Jerusalem. It's easy to begin studying this book and forget that the people of God are in exile. They're in exile, and they're now under the reign and the dominion of these foreign nations. They're in a strange world, right? And the application of that is quite simple, isn't it? As we are engrafted in Christ, as the Lord turns us right side up, sometimes we say, well, the Lord came into my life, He turned me upside down. No, He didn't. You were upside down. He came into the world, He turned you right side up. He gave you eyes that see, ears that hear, and now all of a sudden you're seeing things the way you're supposed to be seeing things. And guess what? As, as the Lord comes into our hearts and opens up our hearts, we gain a new citizenship, don't we? We're no longer citizens of this world. We're now citizens of heaven. And as we walk with God, we begin to see, you know, we're really in a strange world. This really is a strange world. It should be a foreign place to us. Does that make sense? Now, what is the role of faith of this? I mean, I'll tell you where I'm getting my, my concern here. My pastoral concern and my pastoral burden here is that given the direction and the trajectory that our culture is on and has been on for quite some time, uh, I don't think you need to be a, a brain surgeon or any kind of neuro surgeon or any one of those things that you can't spell and are that long. You don't have to be any of that stuff to see that it's going to become increasingly scary to be faithful in this culture, isn't it? And my concern is, okay, how are we going to do it? And more specifically, what I want to spend the rest of our time with is what is the role in faith? What is the role of faith? in enabling us to be able to be faithful when it's scary. You see, faith has everything to do with this. Without faith, it's impossible. Faith has everything to do with this. But how does that work? Well, the first thing that I want to share with you here is that faith reveals to us the real reality that's behind the false reality. The real reality that's behind the false reality. What do I mean by that? These beasts... When, when, they, when they raise up their heads, let's think about Babylon. And we could go back to, we could go back to uh, uh, Daniel 2 if you want. And uh, here Babylon is. What's, what's Nebuchadnezzar doing? Uh, or Bab Daniel 3, rather. What's Nebuchadnezzar doing? He's set up this big statue, right? And he's calling all of the nations that he's conquered together to do what? To worship this big statue. Now, imagine yourself given the ultimatum, either worship the statue or what? Be thrown into the furnace. Okay, 
when this is happening, what's the big picture? What's going to have the tendency to be the big picture in your mind? Not being thrown in the furnace. That's not the real reality, though. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego understand that. There's something worse that could happen than being thrown in the furnace. See, Babylon's temporary. Babylon's not where we belong. Yes, we could actually be thrown in a furnace. Yes, we could perish. But the fact of the matter is Babylon is going to give away. And then another, there'll be another beast that comes along after it. And then it'll give away. And another one will come along after it. So in other words, these persecutions, if you will, these persecutors, what ends up happening to them? If we think about it, what has happened to all of these persecutors that we have named? What has happened to Nero? Where is Nero today? Is he causing any problems to the church of God today? Antiochus Epiphanes, where is he at? Is he causing any trouble? Where's Stalin? Where's Hitler? Where of all these people? Have they thwarted the church? By no means. The church continues to gain steam, doesn't it? Where's the church of Christ today? And where are they today? They're, they're like chaff. They come and they go. Then another takes their place and then they go. And that's how we have to start looking at persecution. It comes, it goes, it's temporary. So when it's scary, and indeed, we don't get anywhere by saying, I don't want to give anybody the impression to say, hey, you know, just, just act like it isn't scary. That's kind of silly because it is scary. You know, when we're persecuted, at least in this country, what, what's the threat? It, very rarely are, we, are, are our lives being threatened. But there is indeed a loss threatened, isn't there? That's what we're afraid of. We're afraid of losing something. What are we afraid to lose? We're afraid to lose our, our good standing with people. We're afraid to lose our reputation. We may be afraid to lose a potential uh, 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 position that we would like to have or a promotion. We may be afraid we'll lose some customers. We may be afraid that we'll lose our business. We may be afraid that we'll uh, uh, lose all of these various temporary things. That's what they hold over us, right? But what's the reality behind all of this? What's the real reality? The real reality is these persecutions can't last very long. What's the worst thing they can do? If you're in Christ this morning, what's the worst anything anyone can do to you? They can take your life. What was our scripture memory verse last week? I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body and after that have nothing more that they can do. I warn you whom to fear. Fear him who, has, who after he has killed has authority to cast into hell. Yes, fear him. And that brings us to the second point I want to make. Faith shows us that there is something greater to fear than Ridicule, loss of reputation, loss of income, loss of faith, or loss of face, rather, uh, and death. 
Um, I want to make a connection for you that I made last week to develop this. If you look with me to verses 13 and 14. You see verses 13 and 14 there? I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man, and he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. Who is the Son of Man? That's Christ Jesus, right? We developed that last week. And he's coming before the Ancient of Days. Who's the Ancient of Days? It's Almighty God, correct? And verse 14, To him was given dominion and a glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Now see, faith embraces this as the reality. The faith embraces this as this is the way it is. Faith embraces the fact that Christ is a reigning king. Right? Okay. Which, in verse 18, notice that it reads, The saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever and ever. Okay, who is receiving the kingdom? Is it Jesus or is it the saints of the Most High? Well, the answer is both, right? When Christ receives His kingdom, His people receive the kingdom with Him, right? When Jesus is victorious, we are victorious. When Jesus is coronated, we are also coronated. So Christ's victory is our victory. His coronation is our coronation. And this leads us to the point. Yes, persecution is scary, but saving faith embraces the fact that there's something more frightening than any persecution that we could ever endure. And that would be to be found outside of the kingdom of Christ. Is anybody here this morning afraid of that? One of the reasons I raise it is because I, I, I fear that we're, maybe there isn't the proper fear there that there should be. I know in the world there isn't. I mean, you talk to people, are you afraid that you're outside of the kingdom of Christ? I mean, people will be, what? There isn't even any thought given to that at all. Are you afraid of being outside of the kingdom of Jesus? Are we afraid of that? Are you afraid of being left out of that? Have you, have, have you thought of that? I mean, this calls for examination. Uh, I guess where this takes us is, have you truly examined yourself to be sure that you're in the faith? Have you done that lately? Someone might say, well, how do I do that? How do I examine myself to see if I'm really in the faith? Well, ask yourself this question, do you love Jesus? I was asking the kids in the car, I rode down to Weirton and picked up Caden and, uh, Aiden and Anna, uh, Drew this morning, and I was asking them in the car on the way in, I'm like, you know, I was just telling them, you know, do you, they were asking about worship, we were talking about worship, well, worship, you know, worship is what we, we revere, it's what we adore, it's, you know, it's what we live for, and I asked them, do you, what do you guys live for? And they were talking about some game called Halo. I don't know if you guys know anything about that. I don't know nothing about that. They live for Halo. Well, these little youngsters don't quite understand, but I'm trying to teach them. What do we live for? What are you living for? When you get up in the morning, what are you living for? What's the reason for getting out of bed in the morning? Is it Jesus or isn't it Jesus? That's a good diagnostic question for us to ask. And let's be brutally honest with ourselves because we're not kidding anyone. What are we living for? We're we living for Christ. Do we love righteousness? 
Do we love holiness? Do we hate wickedness? Do we hate our sin? I'm not asking if you hate, your co hate the consequences of your sin. Everybody does that. We all hate the consequences of our sin. But do you hate the fact that by sinning we rebel against a loving and wonderful Father? Do you hate that? If you do, that's a good sign that you're in the kingdom. A another sign is do you love the brothers? Do you love the sisters in the Lord? Do you love the church? I mean, we should ask ourselves, you know, as we look around, do we love each other? I mean, do we truly want to spend time together? Where am I getting all this? Well, one place is 1 John 3.10. Listen to what John says. In 1 John 3.10, he says, By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. So these are diagnostic questions of John. In fact, in fact, if you have any doubt about this, just this afternoon, get on the couch with the Bible and read 1 John. Read the whole letter. There's full of things like this that we can use to examine ourselves to see if we're in the faith. He's got a number of things like this, doesn't he? Now, my prayer is that God will work in us that we fear nothing more, nothing more than to be apart from Christ. And that means that, that our house burning down would pale in comparison to the fear of being found without Christ. That the worst possible news that you could, you could think of in this life would pale in comparison to being found without Jesus Christ. Do you follow what I'm saying? Because that fear helps us put into context all other fear. It really does. We all should be afraid of being thrown in a fiery furnace. It's a silly thing to say, listen, man, don't be afraid. It's not that hot. The heck, it isn't that hot. It's made seven times hotter. It's hot. It's going to hurt. That's a silly thing. That's just silliness. But Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, to them, they, they, got, they fear something much more than that. That's the thought of being apart from God. You see what I'm trying to say here? Do we have that fear? May God work that fear into our hearts because we're going to need that fear as it becomes scarier to follow Jesus in this world. Faith has that fear because faith embraces all this stuff is true. Without faith, you're not going to have that fear. But with faith, with saving faith, you'll have that fear. And that leads to the third thing. Faith puts the kingdom of God in its proper perspective. Faith puts the kingdom of God in its proper perspective. I think the great sin that we're committing right now in the United States is that we're putting the kingdom of the world where the kingdom of Christ should be, and we're putting the kingdom of Christ where the kingdom of the world should be. That we have these things backwards. Um, you know, when you think about how upset some of us get whenever... <sighs> Our culture takes one more step into disintegration. When we think about how upset we get when there's just one more television program that's uh, advocating hellish uh, ideals, or how upset we get when there's one more piece of legislation that's passed that's hostile to the Christian faith. When we think about all that, and none of that is bad, I'm not saying any of that's bad, but when we think about that and we compare it to how indifferent we are and sharing the kingdom of Christ, I think we learn something about ourselves. 
I think what we learn is that the kingdom of America is up here. And the kingdom of Christ is under it somewhere. I think it's almost like in many of our minds, we're equating the kingdom of God with the kingdom of America. That enables us to idolize America quite comfortably, doesn't it? America is not the kingdom of God. I love America. I'm not advocating any kind of anti-American ideal here. I love America. All of us should love America. Everybody wants to live in America. I'm so thankful that I live in America. I love America. But our love for the kingdom of God should be such that our love for America pales in comparison. It's like when Jesus says, listen, unless you hate your mother, your brother, your sister, father, you know that passage? Unless you hate these individuals, you can't be my disciple. What's Jesus saying? Is he saying we should go around hating people? No, he tells us to even love our enemies. What he is saying is that your love for me should be so great that when you compare your love for everyone else, it pales in comparison. It's almost like hatred. Not hatred in the sense we commonly use it, but simply we love all of these other relationships less. That's what I'm trying to say. This one really stings my heart. I mean, I'm really convicted by number three. You know, I think about my public prayers. I think about my private prayers, but I think especially about my public prayers. And I have to say that if I were to record, if they were to all be recorded and I would listen to them over and over again, I think that I'd probably come to the conclusion, you know what, Rick, you're, you're, putting the, you're, putting a, you're, you're, you're equating the kingdom of God with America. In my head, I'm not doing that, but I have a funny feeling that in my heart I am. And I think, well, if I'm doing that, I'm leading others to do it. As I began thinking this through this week, I think, you know, I think that's what we're all doing. We've got to reverse that. Faith reverses that. How does faith reverse that? Verses 9 through 14. Look at 9 through 14. Verses 9. I, as I look, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames, its wheels were burning fire. Fire issued and came out from before him. Thousands, a thousand, thousands served him. Ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. And look, the court sat in judgment and the books were open. We have a courtroom here, don't we? And what's going on in the courts? Judgment is taking place. That's the fire. Fiery judgment is taking place. And the imagery of, of the white... You know, his clothing is white as snow. That's purity and holiness. And the hair of his head like pure wool. That's the wisdom. And then we see this little horn that's speaking all of these blasphemous things. He's given over to be burned with fire. He's immediately taken out of the ballgame. And the rest of the beasts, their dominion is taken away. Uh, though they're prolonged for a season and for a time. And then in verses 13 and 14, we have the Son of Man coming to the Ancient of Days, Right? We have this whole idea of Jesus coming and being coronated and being crowned king of a kingdom that lasts how long? Is it, a, is it a kingdom like a fifth beast, if you will? No, it's a kingdom that lasts forever. The kingdom of God was alive and well and active long before America was ever born. 
And it's going to be alive and active long after America's demise. So I think in our mindset, we've got to learn to distinguish between the two. Does that make sense? And I think that will help us when times get scary. Where have we been? Faith reveals us Reveal to, reveals to us the reality that's behind what's frightening. Faith shows us there's something greater to fear than persecution. And faith puts the kingdom of God in its proper perspective. And lastly, the most importantly, this is the most important one. If you can only remember one, remember this one. As it's the best one. Faith unites us to Christ. Faith unites us to Christ. You see, nothing that I say up here is going to do any of you any good if you don't have faith. Not just today, but anytime I'm up here. Nothing is going to benefit you if you don't have any faith. Faith is that conduit upon which all the blessings of salvation flow into our lives. Faith is what connects us to Christ. Faith is what unites us to Christ. It's by virtue of faith that verses 13, 14, and 18 are all lined up. In verses 13 and 14, Jesus receives a kingdom. He's crowned as king, right? In verse 18, the saints of the Most High are, right? Well, the saints of the Most High are receiving a crown and a kingdom because they're perfectly united by faith to the king. If you're in Christ this morning, you're a king. I didn't wake up this morning feeling like a king, did you? In fact, I woke up this morning kind of feeling really grumpy and grouchy. I've already apologized twice for it. Does anybody ever wake up like that? I didn't feel like a king. But faith looks at this verse. It looks at these verses. It says, you know what? I'm a king. And I belong to a kingdom that's going to last forever. And that's the bedrock, you see. That's the foundation, you see, that enables us to be faithful, even when there's a threat of being thrown in a furnace. You throw me in a furnace, you're throwing a king in the furnace. <coughs> and you're ushering me into my kingdom where I really belong. Doesn't mean it isn't scary. You want to take my reputation off of me? Whatever. What you think of me is not really, it's important to me. I don't want you to think ill of me. It's important to me, but you know what? At the end of the day, it's much more important to me how God thinks of me. Because my greatest fear is to be found without Christ, not to be found without a reputation, not to be found without convenience and ease and uh, all of these other things. That's, my greatest fear is to not be in Christ. You see how this works? Why would you think that way? Because of faith, because you're reading this book. You know, you read this book, and, and you're not just reading words here. You're reading this book, and by faith you're saying, this is the way it is. It's just like it says in this book. Does that make sense? So I can stand. I'm able to stand. It doesn't mean that it's not scary. But by faith, I'm united to Christ. And... That union with Christ is the most important one of all of these. If you can only remember one this morning, remember it. As you abide in Christ, you will be victorious even when it's scary.
Heavenly Father, Lord, I pray for your help. We all collectively pray for your help this morning, Father. As we look at this short list of things, Father, as we, as we examine our hearts, Father, we find things that are uncomforting to us. We look to you, O Father, for your help. We pray, O Father, that you'll help us to put the kingdom of Christ in its proper perspective. We pray, Father, you'll help us to see the true reality of it all. We pray, Father, that you will show us that the most scary thing that could ever happen to any of us is to be found without without you, O Father. We pray, O Lord, you'll help us to understand that by faith we're so united to you that when you received your kingdom, when you were coronated as king, we were as well. O Father, help us to learn that our our kingdom and home is not here in this this world. It's, It's with you. So, Father, we do require your grace and your help for these things, Father. But as you are pleased to give us advancement in these things, Father, we will uh, progressively be able to stand uh, firmer and firmer, even when it gets scary. So, Father, we pray that you would do this work in Jesus' name. Amen.